welcome to Conservation Chronicles. Uh, Jonah and Camden here again. Um, how you doing, Camden? I am quite well. How about yourself, Jonah? I'm back in school and not happy about it. Um, yeah. We already talked about this last episode. I think we did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but now I just have more issue- issues with time management at this point. Um, so I decided let's record a podcast while I have all this other stuff to do. <laughs> exactly. Um, so just some, some business before we start talking about other stuff. Um, Mariana is dealing with a bunch of personal stuff right now, so she is not going to be returning to the podcast. Um, I also just want to thank her because the last handful of podcasts that she wasn't featured in, she was still editing for me. So thank you, Mariana. Um, and so moving forward, we're going to, Camden and I, Camden's going to help me close out the podcast, but um, in the near future, we're going to be ending the podcast. Um, I, I hesitate to say putting it on hold because I don't want to promise that it's going to start up at any point, but, um, you know, just with Mariana's situation and I'm going to be finishing school so i'm going back to my life as a nomad doing field work and then i'm gonna be going back to zambia and then i don't know what i'm doing after august um so it just it seems like an appropriate time to wrap it up um so thanks camden for helping me wrap it up yeah my pleasure i love the love the podcast so. um and so maybe now all our listeners that we don't know love the podcast will be writing in Riding. No, don't. We love yeah, you. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um. Anyways, so, I mean, with I'm not. This isn't our last episode, but I just wanted to notify everyone that, um. Pretty soon, and we'll let you know when it's going to be the last, or I'll let you know. Um, and yes, we just appreciate you listening this whole time, and putting up with our shenanigans. Uh, our shenanigans. Uh my preaching all of our technical difficulties speaking of that now mariana now i'm going to be editing these so it might be lower quality than mariana because <laughs> very lose. good at editing it editing it and she had a good software and i don't um so anyways just gonna going back to the good old days of, i listened to i went searching for something in one of the in the plastic episode like some fact that we said and so I was like scrolling through it, and wow, our sound quality was horrible in those first few episodes. <laughs> so sorry, listeners, if that's <laughs> <laughs> everyone's probably noticed. Well, they've gotten a lot better sound quality, <laughs> yeah. but that's because of Mariana. I was also recording in like the airport in Bowman, North Dakota, so didn't really have a good setup going on there. Um, so let's dive. Anyways, into it. yeah. So let's talk about some news before we start talking about dead stuff. Um, so I have two pieces of news because I wanted to talk about both of them so badly. The first one, um, I'm going to try to keep this short and not get all worked up. But um, this is probably not something you've heard in the mainstream media, which is I think is tragic. And purposeful. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's very true as well. Um, so the Trump administration just um, 
passed some changes about the definitions of waterways protected by the Clean Water Act. So the Clean Water Act was passed in 1972. It's one of the first environmental federal statutes that was passed in the United States. So um, it's, it's been around for a long time, and it's been really important for protecting water quality, and not just for, you know, wildlife, but for people. Yeah, our, um, exactly. Like the river I was talking about, you know, the Andrzejewski River, one of the top ten most polluted rivers in the United States here yeah. in Maine. You know, yeah. not New York City, like Maine. <laughs> yep. So um, the Clean Water Act, among other legislation, you know, helped improve those situations. But so so this, you know, this rollback on federal fe- regulations is what it is. They've limited the definition of waterways that are protected. It, it means that seasonal waterways and wetlands that aren't connected to waterways aren't going to be protected by the Clean Water Act. So, you know, creeks that only, you know, run in the spring or whatever, it, it it's limited to now the the act only will protect like larger waterways, you know, uh, I'm not going to get into the specific definitions, but it's removed these smaller waterways and wetlands. And the, the wetlands part is really concerning, you know, wetlands that aren't connected to waterways. Well, you think most of them are, but prairie potholes, which we just talked about in the last episode, are not. And so the prairie potholes are no longer going to be protected by this federal legislation. Um, Hopefully, you know, landowners have enough ethics to... I'm not saying it's just going to be like a free-for-all now, but this is just a dangerous... um, Precedent. Yeah, it's, it's a statement, really, about our values, our land ethics. And I, this is a really interesting, obviously we'll have the link to this so you can read more about it. Um, But the director of the Center for, the Center for Biological Diversity, he said that this regulatory rollback is, quote, a sickening gift to polluters, um, which is very strong, but it, it's really what it is. You know, the administrations justify this decision by saying that it restores the rights of landowners, meaning the right to abuse the land and do whatever you want, regardless of who or what it affects. Um, it restores the rights of landowners, you know, so farmers don't have to worry if they accidentally overplow a field and get too close to a creek. They do that intentionally. Like, yeah. they want to plow every square inch possible that i mean i'm generalizing but that is the case you go to places like the united states heartland like illinois and stuff that's what people do they they plow right up as far as they can so it's it's not like an accidental thing that also the reality is that real estate developers they're the ones that dominate um permit acquisition for impinging on what waterways not farmers so you know if you're going to be doing some sort of land development where it's going to be close to waterways or affect waterways. You have to get a permit. It's real estate developers that are mostly doing this, which is obvious why this administration would, you know, make a legislative decision in favor of them. Um, and so to just pass it off on farmers, which of course, you know, farmers are going to, a lot of farmers are going to use this, but like, that's just not the facts. The facts are that it's mostly real estate developers that are dealing with this act so uh, of course you know 
This is a move that's characteristic of Trump because he's a real estate developer, but also just the Trump, Trump administration. And I don't, I'm not into like railing on Trump like most people because it's not like as much as anyways, he's not like a dictator that's making sole decisions. It's a larger body of people. And so this is really, like I said, a statement. It's a statement about a larger cultural, cultural issue of land ethics. Um, and if you haven't, you should listen to one of our episodes from last year called land ethics. Um, where we had a guest, uh, Eric Freifogel on it, where we talked about land ethics. And so anyways, this just ties in and uh, to that and it ties into the wetlands. And it's just, it's a really, it's a big deal. And I think it's disturbing to me that people see legislation and regulations from like these environmental acts, like the Clean Water Act, as nothing but a burden. Yeah. It's like they're here to protect you for a reason. They're here to protect you and the land and the things you share the land with. It's not an arbitrary thing for government control. They were established for a reason. And I'm not saying that like a regulatory burdens aren't a thing, but I just am not into decisions like this being made to benefit poor land ethics you know if you had if you had sound land ethics you wouldn't have to worry about these regulations you know so they wouldn't be a burden and that's the larger cultural issue anyways i could go on (laughs) yeah we could make a whole Um, new podcast not that we have the time right (laughs) yeah exactly um okay so moving on to more wildlifey stuff um again we'll have the link to this this is from manga bay which often a place we get our news from because they're great um a paper just came out describing five new songbird species and five new subspecies from the islands of um taliabu and palang which are in indonesia and it was the paper is published by a joint research team from national university of singapore and indonesian institute of sciences and they did this six-week expedition from November 2013 to January 2014 on these islands um, because they've been poorly explored by the scientific community. And so I just, I like to, you know, feature new species being discovered, especially when, you know, this many five species and five subspecies are discovered because just to put things in perspective, on average, five to six new bird species are discovered each year in the entire world so in the span of six weeks going to this unexplored island they found these species so um it's pretty cool yeah it um is. yeah more stuff that we have to worry about going extinct yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay what do you have camden yeah so i have some interesting news i to be honest i'm not sure how i feel about it um, but, uh, for those who, uh, remember some of my interjections on some of the, uh, you know, various episodes that I've been on, you know, I'm definitely really into rewilding and historical zoo biogeography. Uh, so in India, um, they have just, uh, they have just voted in the Supreme Court, uh, that they would like to reintroduce the, the cheetah into India. 
that being said, I mean, the idea sounds great and whatnot. Of course, there's a lot of logistics and evaluations of feasibility studies as a whole. The problem is um, the natural historic, you know, um, occurring, historically occurring, spe you know, subspecies of cheetah that would have occurred in India would have been the Asiatic cheetah. Uh, we know that the closest place and only place that exists, you know, where um, Asiatic cheetah still occurs, of course, in Iran. Uh, I think last population estimate would be at 50, so maybe between 50 and 70, and they're you know incredibly sparse. It's not it's not great. Obviously, 50 animals is not great. Uh, very far from being great. Uh, so the Indian government would not um, you know proceed with taking those you know that subspecies, but rather take uh, a sub, you know an African subspecies, particularly from the country of Namibia. Um, so it, it's. You know, there's a lot of you know genealogical work that was done to see how closely related they are, the two species. And to be honest, I don't have a whole you know a whole lot of information personally. I, this is a subject I've been following for a couple of years. Uh, for those who have been following, you'll know that the or haven't been knowing, you'll um, you'll find out that this is a subject that's been coming back to the Supreme Court in India for several several times. It's actually something that they've been trying to accomplish since the 1970s. Um, they even had uh, some more stronger arguments to actually take some Asiatic cheetahs b before the Islamic Revolution in 1979 in Iran, which really changed things. Um, but uh, it's a really, like I said, I'm kind of up in the air about it. Uh, there's a lot of work that will still need to be done. For example, uh, measuring you know prey densities in the different location sites. So uh, the different location suggested location sites are the Kunapalpur Wildlife Sanctuary and the Madhya Pradesh State. Um, the Vela Vadar National Park in Gujarat, and if if Gujarat sounds familiar, that's because that's where we have, of course, the Asiatic lions occurring in the Gir National Forge in the Gujarat Peninsula. And the other location is the Tal Shapar Sanctuary in Rajasthan. So all historically, you know, places where Indi India, um, Indian cheetahs would have occurred. Um, now, for those who didn't know about cheetahs um, in in India, the actual the term cheetah, cheetah is an is a is a is a word from India describing spots. I've, I've, it's either Sanskrit or Hindi. I can't remember exactly. But uh, when the English, uh, you know, started colonizing air, the term cheetah came from India. And the the cheetah has a long history in India, being more or less domesticated by the Mughal princes and kings. You know, we talk about the great General Akbar, uh, not General, uh, the, the King Akbar of the Mughal Emperor, uh, just said to have something like a thousand of, you know, cheetahs in his stable. Something, you know, just crazy numbers. Um, interestingly enough, another fun fact for you, the, the cheetah is the only species uh, that has gone extinct uh, since India's independence in 1947, which is not, I mean... It's not that bad, actually, compared to other places. <laughs> One yeah. species that's not... Even too... the United States. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's very, you know, in terms of major... Spe I mean, there's probably, you know, might you know, some species of rodents and amphibians possibly going to... But in terms of very charismatic species, it's the only one to have gotten extinct. Um, so very interesting. Not that those are... They don't deserve to go... Not that they deserve to go extinct, the other species. But it's, it's a very interesting situation. Not something you hear about all the time. Uh, so if you are interested in learning a little bit more about that, if you just look it up, I, there's plenty of articles. I did pull the article from Smithsonian, but you have several from The Telegraph and, you know, Hindustan uh, Times and so on and so forth. So uh, it's worth looking up. It's up to you once again. Like all of this, it's up to you to make your opinion. But uh, it's uh, interesting. Yeah, I have lots of questions like are they captive cheetahs that are being <laughs> yeah yeah i are don't know they, do, i do didn't you know? say it. i think either they're taking 
I don't know. That's the problem is because there are not that many cheetahs anyways in India. I mean, in the African subcontinent anyways. Yeah, that's what's that's what's nonsensical about these kind of projects to me. It's like we can't, we don't even have a grasp of them where they currently exist. It's like us going to the moon and Mars. I personally think it's ridiculous because we can't even take care of stuff here. So why are yeah. we doing that? Yeah, I agree. You know, yeah, we can't take care of our planet. Yeah. No, it's crazy. But anyways, uh, no, it's, but uh, it's I, interesting. I, yeah, it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah, so it's it's worth following for you know if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah, and again ties into our rewilding episode. Yeah, exactly. Look at us go. We just accidentally tie all these things together all the time. Yeah, it's serendipitous. <laughs> okay, so we are going to talk about dead things and things that eat dead things um we're talking about scavengers and we'll talk about it here in a few moments when we get down to it but um the the this topic was sort of prompted by this article that recently came out um this study that came out that found that large mammal carcasses promote diversity in invertebrate communities and plant diversity like at sites where the carcasses are and so that's kind of why i was like it's not the first study like that but it, it's um i've been wanting to talk about scavengers for a while so it just it just seemed appropriate Alrighty. so um as you said you know prompted by the article um so you know, to throw it out there, what exactly is a scavenger? Um, you know, sometimes I'm a scavenger. They call me the seagull because I like to finish <laughs> off people's plates. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, that being said, um, in the natural world of the sense of the word, uh, you, know, you know, to define a scavenger, it's an animal that consumes decaying biomass. could be both, uh, you know, meat or plant matter. I wonder what about mushrooms because they're kind of, are they scavengers? Fungi is fungi. I don't know. <laughs> I'm um, curious about that. Oh, because they break oh, you apart. Mean are, you know, are, is a mushroom mass. a scavenger? You mean? Yeah. I wonder. Um, I guess can plants be? You know what I mean? I guess it has to be. Yes, it has to be an animal. I guess. Yeah, you're right. Excuse yeah, just, I uh, think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry, that. guys. It was a little bit of tangent there. I was just curious. No, it's a good question. But I just think because scavenge is like a verb. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, you, I guess you can't just passively scavenge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm just observing this dead thing on accident. <laughs> That's right. So technically scavengers don't have to feed on dead things. It's just, um, you know, it's something that they have, you know, adaptation to do and, you know, it comprises a, maybe a, a good portion of their diet. These things or they're, you know, if the circumstances are good, they're prone to do it. You know, think of flies, yeah, it's like for de- example, it's it's like feed. decaying stuff, not right. just dead stuff. Exactly. Yeah, it's in the skate. And you know, so you know, and you know, think of flies that feed on open wounds. You know, they don't have to just only they don't only eat that, but it's you know, it's it's really opportuni- you know, opportunistic, if you will. So thinking in terms of traffic levels, scavengers are secondary consumers, recycling energy within the ecosystem. So very vital roles. Roles. Uh, scavengers aren't a specific group of animals, since many species are omnivorous uh, and may opportunistically feed on carrion. Um, you know, i.e., decaying flesh. The flexible diet of many scavengers can make them more successful in acquiring food. You know, like 
you know, omnivores are usually highly successful. Hence why animals that scavenge are successful in adapting to changing environments. You know, think of coyotes, jackals, foxes, hyenas, weasels, uh, rats, then, you know, different bird species like turkey vultures, ravens, crows, cockroaches, things that we can commonly see in urban areas because, once again, that, that flexibility that they have allows them to colonize and successfully establish and even prosper in what would be more hostile to other species. So think of the amount of roadkill and how it has benefited scavengers uh, in, the U in, in the U.S., for example. I mean, every time I drive up to northern Maine, I, will, I can't even count how many crows and ravens are on the side of the road because they're just waiting for people to hit moose. <laughs> you know, they're just waiting for that <laughs> to happen. Um, it's like fast yeah. food for them. I mean, literally, I guess you could say it's fast. Um, but no, it's, yeah, it's an uh, interesting dynamic, once again, to, to study. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that that roadkill um, shows how, or the, the use of roadkill as a food source obviously shows the flexible nature of the diet of a scavenger um, and how it has, I mean, thinking about how it's driven... Um, biogeographical changes of species sure you know like expanding because there's a lot more roadkill or human waste or, or whatever or even just the amount of livestock you think of in, in some parts of the world so i could you know in in the united states um the black vulture its range is moving northward and so you know who knows there's probably a handful of reasons why that's happening, but you know they've been implicated in a lot of um, deaths of cow calves. Like they're like a cow, a f cow is born and it's like you know helpless and still all wet, and then the vultures descend on it. Um, and so obviously in places like the Corn Belt and stuff where there's all these cows that's going to be beneficial for these black vultures. And so that might be why they've expanded there mm. um, where they weren't. I mean, maybe they were, it, it's hard from a historical pr perspective to decide. Maybe could have done that on bison, you know, who knows? Exactly. Yeah. Which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. Oh, sorry. But, um, <laughs> stealing my thunder. Um, <laughs> but another, another thing I can think of is just like entrail dumps. And so I don't know. I mean, these are definitely a thing in the United States, but I think with mad cow disease, which I'll also talk about in a bit, um, or one of us will, we've become, well, I don't want to say better, but we've changed the way we dispose of, like, waste, uh, like, flesh waste and organs and stuff from livestock. But I just remember going, when I was in South Africa, and I was in KwaZulu Natal. In this, a couple places we went to these entrail dumps where the whoever I don't know who's doing it, but you know the cows that get butchered and stuff. They bring all the entrails there and dump it in the dump. And there's just tons of yellow-billed kites and woolly-necked storks, and um, it's a good place to go bird watching. But it's just interesting, like you know how that is going to influence the population dynamics and the distribution dynamics of those species like yellow-billed kites and woolly-necked woolly storks just because they're taking advantage of that 
because they can scavenge and you know another species like a i don't know like a saddlebill stork isn't gonna you know it's not gonna benefit from those entrail dumps like a woolly neck stork might or like a marabou stork might so it's just interesting differences between similar species when one is you know has the I don't want to say the ability to scavenge, but they have scavenging behavior if, if they are presented the opportunity. Um, and so this, it does make me think, like you said, you know, before European, when there was all the bison, what like turkey vulture or black vulture populations were like, especially turkey vulture because they're more w- widespread. You know, what was it like before Europeans colonized the New World? Yeah, because... One could imagine, like, Native Americans, you know, they would very much have, keep a pressure on, you know, bison. Granted, they used much more of the animal than the Europeans did, but you would still have entrails and things like that. They would be able to, in you know, pretty large quantities at a time. So, it's plausible. In addition to just naturally, bison that just naturally died. So, I'm sort of, like, imagining them, you know, the American bison, they used to migrate. And so, I'm imagining them, the turkey vultures... You know, their uh, whatever dynamics movement-wise or population-wise, you know, could be influenced by this. And so it makes me wonder, have cows replaced bison in this sense? Obviously not in other ecological ways, but as far as, like, the the carry-on food that's available out there, the, the dead food that's out there, have they replaced bison? Because... I don't know. It's just it's just an interesting thought, and I haven't really thought beyond that. Um, so someone might say that's ridiculous, and we know that because. But um, you know, there's there's I don't know. Maybe there's there's probably a lot less cow biomass laying out on the landscape because you could have disease. <laughs> you know what I mean? All those yeah, <laughs> we dispose of them. I I don't know. It's just it's just a thought. But you know, that's I think that's also where roadkill comes in. Um, this statistic that I have is 15 years old, so listen to that with that in mind. But 15 years ago, um, it was estimated that 1 million vertebrates were run over on roads in the United States every day. A million vertebrates every day. So now it's probably over 2 million because... Um, there was this recent State Farms insurance analysis that found uh, 1.9 million animal collision claims in the United States in a year, and so that's just the like that's like deer and moose, like not opossums and stuff. So a million in a day, that's a lot of carcasses out there that are available for scavengers. Um, not unless they're in Maine where we take them home and cook them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's some, there are studies out there, or like pro, citizen science projects out there, like for keeping track of roadkill. And I, I wish that there was like a um, sort of like eBird. There's a, well, there is a database called DBird for reporting dead birds, but I wish that there was like a eBird kind of citizen science thing for roadkill. I'd never get anywhere because I'd just be recording every single one. But, you know, I going back and forth, I, I commute to school, so I have a long drive. And just every day I go, there's a, there's at least one new carcass out there in addition to the ones that I had seen previously. So they're just constantly accumulating. 
Um, and, the, you know, the irony, especially up where, you know, in the Northeast, where you are, uh, I mean, the white-tailed deer population isn't, like, bad in Maine like it is in Pennsylvania, but, yeah, a lot of places where white-tailed deer populations have exploded because of the lack of predators and poor habitat management or, or whatever the cause be, you know, they become problematic, and that just increased the amount of roadkill. And so the overpopulation of white-tailed deer has only served to benefit turkey turkey vultures and, and black vultures in the south. So it's just like ironies, these ecological ironies, are they just fascinate me because we're, all we're thinking about is like the issue of the deer, but the vultures are like... Please don't change anything. Yeah, it's beneficial for them. But then, of course, the vultures are getting hit in some cases, especially, like, there are so... I love vultures, um, all vultures. I love all scavengers. There's so many black vultures where I live. The turkey, A lot of turkey vultures have migrated right now, but the black vultures, they, um, they congregate at carcasses, whereas turkey vultures don't do that as much. And so you see black vultures hit on the road a lot more because there's a lot more of them on a carcass, and as they're flying off you know there's just more of an opportunity for one of them to get hit um so it's just it's just interesting the whole roadkill thing but you know before scavengers can do their thing other animals have to die and that's that's obvious um but you know there's there's an increasing body of research that's demonstrating the important interactions between predators and large herbivores and scavengers and sort of um well not sort of in in maintaining biodiversity especially at small scales like i was saying with that one study small scales at a carcass and so there was a study a couple years ago by the panthera puma project um out of yellowstone and they investigated puma kill sites and the carcasses from puma kills were visited by 39 mammal and bird species which is that's how many were scavenging which is 11 percent of all the local birds and 28 percent of the local mammals and so not only is this well it's interesting from a this an ecological point of view because that means that all these species have the ability to scavenge like they have a flexible diet um but it's also just interesting that how many species are benefiting from this one puma kill, you know? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I remember watching, um, reading or watching, like, uh, like Siberian tiger kills in Far Eastern Russia. Like, they were visited by sable, lynx, uh, other weasel species, uh, wild boar. I mean, it just has, like, it hits the entire trophic pyramid. It's, it's you know what I mean? Yeah. It has this cascading effect. It, it, I think, for example, wolverines, they highly are dependent on wolf and, you know, bear kills for their some of their food and whatnot. Yeah, it's huge. Absolutely yeah. huge. So the, these, like, large predators, like pumas or tigers, whatever, they really act like ecosystem engineers in that they're, um, on a small scale, they're, promoting biodiversity and so in this puma study they were promoting beetle community um, diversity at these kill sites because this is what they were measuring in this study they were looking at beetles and so interestingly most of the beetles that were on the carcass were plant feeder species because they were you know going to feed on the digestive content of the 
the prey in the prey's stomach, you know, that had been broken open while the puma was feeding or while something else was scavenging. So you you just don't really think about that. You think, oh, there's this car this deer carcass. All these animals are coming here to eat the meat, but all the food undigested food is useful to these beetles and, and other things as well. And so as beetle so in this study they found that beetle abundance decreased as the carcass decomposed. So there weren't as many, but as the carcass decomposed, diversity increased. And so they found 215 species of beetles in their study on cougar carcass, on puma carcasses, kill carcasses. I mean, um, so it's just a, it's a really cool study for a variety of reasons. But I think you know, looking at the relationship between pumas and beetles, like who would have like no one thinks about that, you know? <laughs> yeah. We go way back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this, and so the paper that I was referencing in the beginning, um, also found something very similar. It was in the Netherlands, and they were looking at red deer carcasses, and the difference, well, the difference is that these weren't naturally killed red deer. Um, because there's no large predators present that are killing them, so because too many of them. So they they found that the number of arthropods was over two and a half times greater at carcass sites than at control sites, which is sites where there was no carcass. And so they found two three hundred sixty six species of arthropods total at red deer carcasses, and plant biomass was five times greater at decomposed carcass sites than at control sites. So, you know, that Puma study didn't look at plants, but I'm willing to bet that the same thing probably was going on, you know, on a very small scale. Um, and so, you know, these, in addition to the, the Puma study, these findings are really important because it, it shows how important it is for um, these larb herbivores large herbivores to die so that you know there needs to be predators on the landscape that are are helping this whole helping engineer this ecosystem um and you know this study site in the netherlands is a former agricultural area is it, so it's is also it the kind of area yes i believe so yeah i'd have to look at the paper but we'll have the link to these studies um in the show notes but you know these it's just interesting because this is a formal former agricultural area and so it's still like recovering um from that state and so carcasses are going to help promote regeneration of the vegetation and on a small scale and you know who would have thought that throwing out dead carcasses on this landscape is going to help with restoration right exactly (laughs) oh my gosh yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, so that being said, you know, gr- you know, not only does it serve a natural, you know, purpose and is very important for biodiversity. Um, scavengers is cu- you know huge for humans. Um, you know the benefits that scavengers provide. You know, like I said, as these eco- ecosystem services. Um, you know, because they're benefiting the entire system, but they also benefit humans. Once again, humans, we're no, you know, we're no different, and that rules apply to us. But 
Yeah, so, you know, there's a really huge relationship between you know um, scavengers and vultures. Uh, I mean, scavengers um, and people. Let, let, for example, uh, vultures. Um, they're some of the most important um, because given how widespread they are, and they help present. You know, they help. Uh, excuse me, prevent diseases from spreading. I remember um, remember reading or watching, once again, I can't remember, uh, about um, there was a lot of huge endeavors to poison vultures in India. And afterwards, there was huge diseases spreading because there was nothing else, you know, they, things were kept on being killed. Uh, um, and then, you know, all this biomass, decaying biomass was on the periphery of town and nothing was being done with it. And then the disease spread. So really, really I'll t- Yeah, I'll, t- I'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay. Um... So, for example, um, <laughs> you know, basically scavengers are the underappreciated cleanup crew. You know, we always hate on them. You know, we don't like the hyenas. We don't like the vultures. People poison them. But they are so necessary. Um, and, you know, it's truly understated. Uh, they, you know, they help clean up livestock carcasses around human settlements. Uh, for example, one experimental study in the urban area of the UK found 73% of carcasses were removed by vertebrate scavengers. That's huge. I mean, a you don't have to pay them. You know, there's in terms of people that that from that point of view, it, it makes so much sense. Um, you know, so in, in in other cultures, you know, dead humans um, sometimes are given what's known as a sky burial. So uh, going back to India and not Tibet. Um, you find yourself in such high altitudes that um, things can't properly decay. You know they dec- You know, and so in order to, uh, well, not in order. It just was a natural occurring thing. Um, vultures. You know, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, and I think it was bearded vultures, lammergeiers. I think in in Tibet. I can't. I think so. Does that sound right with you, Jonah? Is it lammergeiers? I think. Uh, I think it was. It was also other species in, yeah. in India. No, yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that was one in particular, but. Um, but you know they basically eat the human corpus, corpus, uh, cor- corpses, and um, you know help once again prevent the spread of disease. Um, recent vulture per- population collapses have made this uh, method essentially unviable. Now that's the problem, um, and that will ultimately have residual impacts on the local populations. Um, so it it just once again it puts things into perspectives like. It's crazy, especially in Western um, culture. We have this, you know, very, you know, we gotta re- get rid of them, you know, you know, vultures and you know everything, you know, like. But ultimately, they're, you know, they're there to help us more or less, you know, it, it, you know that optic, if you will. Um, you know, so going back to Western countries, you know, we, humans have taken. We were talking about earlier on, you know, have taken cleanup matters into their own hands. Um, once again, expensive responsibility. Uh, discoveries of diseases transmitted from livestock, uh, you know, mad cow disease, has led to regulations um, on carcass disposal. So that's kind of why we have them. Um, now again, livestock remains are transported to be uh, to certain disposal sites or incinerated. A disposal service that scavengers have already done once again for free. So it's it's you know universal. You know something that we talk about often. It's you know, humans, we don't take the time to understand these ecological properties and principles that uh, if we did, we would ultimately be saving money. But that's another debate. It's another whole entire podcast series. Um, giving you an example of that, um, it's estimated that Spanish vultures remove anywhere between 134 and 201 metric tons of bones. 
Um, so about, um, you know, about 5,500 to 8,300 tons of meat um, every year uh, that is being taken care of by these different species of vultures found in Spain. Um, this, you know, a service, you know, um, how would I say, if this was to be implicated and only taken care of by people, it would be a service that would cost over $1 million. <laughs> and it's once again, <laughs> being free and, it, you know, not only helping out the, you know, the vultures, it's helping out the different beetle species and so on and so forth. And then you have more productive, um, you know, environments but uh no it, it, it's once again it's this arrogance and many other things but uh it's it's like the solution's right there you know once again but we just yeah. have to go to a thousand other things before we can figure it out before you know when it's too late you know it, i mean it, it makes it does make sense for us to be for people to be concerned about um you know decaying flesh like within a proximity because of of human health but if it's if it's managed properly and if there's scavengers present like it's not an issue you have to worry about and so i think vultures are the ultimate example and we could i i could talk forever about vultures but you know they're they're kind of common in this theme here about scavenging and one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that old world vultures are one of the most threatened groups of animals on earth at the moment. So there've been huge population declines and distribution contractions in the last century, especially in the last 50 years, that have left 11 of the 16 species endangered or critically endangered. Um, And unless you, you know, follow like conservation specific media, like like we do, you, you might not even be aware of this. And, you know, the regular mainstream just focuses on elephants and rhinos and lions and tigers, but the reality is that vultures, most of the vulture species are way more endangered than any of these charismatic megafauna. So just as an example, there's somewhere around like 30,000 lions in Africa, 20,000 white rhinos, and over 350,000 elephants, and their population trend is increasing, by the way. But there's less than 9,000 lappet-faced vultures and less than 9,000 white-headed vultures and rapidly decreasing. Um, And no one even, like, people don't even know this. And, you know, (laughs) Cecil the lion gets killed and the world becomes enraged. But last June, there was a poisoning event where 500 vultures died in Botswana in a single poisoning event. And no one bats an eye. They just continue, whatever, reading Donald Trump's tweets or paying attention to the royal couple. Like, 500 vultures in a single instance. You know, I think um, 14 of them were lappet-faced, if I recall correctly. And so when there's less than 9,000 of them, like, in an instant, 14 of them are gone. Just with the... and no one even no one i mean i don't want to say no one but the mainstream isn't paying attention to this it's we're still just getting fed this lion and rhino and elephant propaganda crap and i'm sick of it because anyways anyways it just disgusts me because like we keep saying like these scavengers are so important and it's not just like they're important to other animals they're really important to us 
and like you were talking about the decline of south asian vultures was a really interesting and horrible case study in which the country of india learned this um and there's one study that that we'll have it that i'll have in the the show notes that try to quantify the economic impact of the south asian vulture population collapse and so they looked at the years um 1993 to 2006 and they estimated that a total of 34 billion dollars in health services was the cost of losing vultures during that time period 34 billion dollars in a 14-year period that's how much it costs india because their vulture populations collapsed so in this period the dog the dog population increased by 7.25 million which of course because they're scavenging so they're feeding on all these carcasses that vultures normally would have been feeding on and then that just caused a rabies epidemic and killed over 48,000 people and also contributed to the spread of bubonic plague that killed many more oh wow so like that's a very difficult lesson to learn um and a lot of other places in africa where vultures are declining i mean this kind of stuff could be happening again um it's just it's the reality of it like you said these are the scavengers especially vultures are the underappreciated cleanup crew and it just can't be stressed enough how important they are for people and other animals. So basically the point is that we just don't really realize their value in, until they're gone. And exactly. it's pretty tragic. I feel like I say that in, every in single India. episode I'm on this week. There's at one point I say until they're gone. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, but it's the truth. That, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's funny because we keep on saying and we will keep on saying it but it has to be said because if if you if you just if you're not relentless about it people will forget it and you know not that our listeners yeah. aren't people that are already conscious about that but it's things you have to keep on you know putting into people's mind this is the situation this is what's going on and even then of course it doesn't change that much but so you, yeah you reality check up. that's what i always call it yeah, you can't but even then you, you can't give up you know you still have to do it so um you know, we were talking about vultures, and, you know, vultures, they don't cause any harm to people. You know, that's what's even more crazy, like, why are we poisoning them? I mean, maybe they're poisoning it for other species, and, and a lot of times they're poisoning it for big carnivores, and so that's a great segue to what I want to talk about next, um, you know, because a lot of times, in, you know, they're trying to get rid of big predators, and so vultures end up, you know, they par- poison carcass, and then vultures get killed, but, um, uh, and so... Other, you know, another thing is not only do you have that happening, but since larger carnivores sometimes can, you know, you know, be scavenging, sometimes in proximity homes, there can be conflict between humans and scavengers, um, especially in the age of endless human waste. Um, carnivores take advantage of landfills and dumps, and that brings them, of course, you know, uh, closer to people. Before I go a little bit further, I was thinking about this earlier. If I'm not mistaken, I think we talked about this, Jonah, but. Um, dr- <laughs> A little sidekick, but uh, the Savo lions, if I'm not mistaken, weren't a lot of, wasn't there huge amounts of like corpses of people and whatnot, you know, people that had died during making of the, the bridge and whatnot, and 
there were so many corpuses that some of the behavior of the local lions had changed, I think, or something like that. I remember we talked about that because of this just rampant amount of whether it was human flesh or other um, flesh that was there. I don't think we've ever talked about that, but I don't think it was like copious amounts of corpses, but they there were a lot of car like human corpses around that were contributing to the lions hanging yeah, I mean, around it's not the camp. Copious. I mean, we're not talking mounds of people, but I mean more so that things could change. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't think that that was the entire reason that these right. lions were being man-eaters right. or I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, like don't I said know, it is a little bit uh, There uh, were uh, there they were feeding on carcass human carcasses yeah. around. So, it's just something, you know, like it's a totally different tangent, but I had thought about that. So, if you don't know the story, look it up. Yeah. Um so other examples of how, you know, it brings people into contact is uh one species in particular is polar bears. So, um the dump in Churchill, Manitoba. So, for those who are not familiar, familiar with uh Churchill, Manitoba, it's up there. It's so up there that on <laughs> Halloween, uh, children have to be careful when trick-or-treating uh, because um, uh, polar bears have been known to prowl the streets of Churchill, Manitoba. Um, wow, great costume. That's a bear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there were so many that the dump actually in Churchill was closed in 2006 because, um, you know, polar, ba- polar bears were taking advantage of it and they were eating the garbage as a main food source. Or a you know pretty prominent food source while waiting for the ice to form, um, and behavior like this was also noticed in the past uh, year and a couple of years I think also in um, eastern uh, places in Russia, notably in uh, Ch- uh, Chukotka. Chukotka is in the eastern next to Kamchatka in that area. Um, just this year, fifty six polar bears were seen feeding on like carcasses that were killed, seal carcasses and other garbage dumps. They were found next to, and literally we talk about, you know, small towns being invaded by polar bears. I, 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 it was pretty prominent in some of the news sources. I think people might have heard about it. But it just goes to show that, um, especially when animals don't have a lot of choices, they're going to do whatever they're going to do to survive. And that puts them in proximity to humans, especially when you have a mega, mega carnivore like uh, a polar bear. Um, yeah, things are about to, you know, will get hairy uh, for sure. Um, you know, this is the case for other predators, but that was one in particular that was, you know, kind of out there. And of course, these are massive animals. Um, another thing that I want to talk about is, uh, so in Ethiopia, you have, uh, many different religions. You have, um, you know, animist religions, you have, uh, people that are Orthodox Christians and Muslims. And something that, um, was really interesting that I, I found out about this a couple of years ago, and I had noted specifically about this place in Ethiopia, but um, a lo- sometimes people have resorted, this probably happens in other places, but this one case in particular kind of is really well known, is uh, a lot of butchers and butcher shops will actually dispose of their, um, you know, their the flesh, and it will be taken care of by uh, spotted hyenas. Um and they will actually come into town and they will make their way to, you know, butcheries and so on and so forth. And they will, you know, eat the food. So there was a study that was done outside of a, a particularly, uh, you know, strong Christian Orthodox city in northern Ethiopia. Where, sca- you know, hyenas regularly scavenge animal remains that were butchered and left at their disposal. Um, hyenas, as a rule of thumb, generally don't attack humans while they're there. Um, you know, they cut... And within more or less proximity to humans, but since there's a natural food source, humans respect their space, and they, you know, and so on and so forth. There's really no um, animosity in terms of uh, human direct human 
how would I say that direct human you know attacks or something like that. Um, even they're they're so helpful that actually hyenas have been referred to as municipal workers. Uh, once again, <laughs> you know that they're, they're taking. But they're care doing of, it for free. That's the difference. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know freeloaders, but. The, you know, we think of freeloaders in the sense like, oh, they're getting away with this, but they're free because they don't cost you anything and they're taken away for you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, the, another famous city in Ethiopia is a place called Harar. Um, this time Harar, if I'm not mistaken, is mostly Muslim. Um, and it's actually become a quite tourist destination because there's one, like, family of people that have even, like, hand-feed hyenas, and there's a lot of things I'm not okay with that, but more or less it exists and people actually have made it into a tourist attraction where you can go and feed the hyenas your, yourself and there's a lot of things that i that i fan of but it, once again it points out to how commonly this occurs and how big of a deal um so what the study shows is that there was a real big change in the diet of hyenas during the fasting period uh, at this now so at that time you know with the equivalent of like lent and whatnot people aren't eating at all any meat products and so what they came to find out was now the hyenas are in the area and they're not getting their proper you know they're not their proper but they're not getting their common food source so they're resorting to actually feeding on donkeys and they found out by doing scat analysis across the periphery of town that all you know all these hyena scats are full of um Hyena, uh, excuse me, uh, donkeys, and they, and the thing about donkeys is they're like pretty good size. They're, they're like perfect hyena sized, you know, to be killed by hyenas. They're not, you know, they're not that necessarily incredibly intelligent or things like that. So, not that they're not intelligent, but, uh, you know, they're really easy for hyenas to take care of them. So what happens is people are losing their their donkeys during this, and so now, they're, <laughs> you know, it's like. Let's stagger our fasting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, because they need them to get rid of their you know, the waste, but at the same time, it's like when they're not getting them, well, the hyenas need to eat other stuff. And a reason in particular why they're feeding on donkeys is because low. Uh, there's not a lot of other prey options in the area. Not only has it become a learned behavior for them to come and eat, you know, the 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 you know, the, the, the meat uh, leftovers, but. Um, there's nothing else much for them to eat in the area. So they've established a presence because of there's a constant, at least you know six months of the year, constant food presence. And then when it's gone, well, they have to look for food otherwise and it comes into um, mostly donkeys, but some other like goats and sheep and things like that. So it's it's become a, you know, it's a pretty big problem at the same time because now they're losing important livestock for them. Um, and the thing about donkeys is they're also, generally speaking, kept outside. <laughs> so they're really easy for uh, hyenas to get. Um, and uh, so really interesting uh, story. It's it's like, you, you, you know, it, it's like a yeah, fire it, on two sides. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting and ironic case study. And I think that, I mean, that's like an extreme case of, of scavenging and, you know, becoming reliant on humans for it. But it, I think it's just another irony in, like, scavenger ecology yeah um just like we're talking about with the road kills and and stuff yeah they're gonna find a way you know they're not just gonna you know wait patiently and waste away they're gonna find a way to eat them you know like everything else and survive yeah exactly and yeah i mean and that's what we basically started off saying is that scavengers are, are opportunistic that's sort of the name of the game um but that's also something that's 
contributes to um, the threats that they face. So we've we've mentioned poisoning um, a couple times. I think back in our um, poisoning or poisoning our poaching series that Mariana and I did. Um, we did a three-part poaching series. I don't remember which episode it's in. It's either in either one or two. I think it's in episode one. But we talked more about poisoning. Um, and we probably talked about vultures then as well. But it, you know, there's this deliberate poisoning of vultures because they're giving away the sight of a poached elephant or something, or they're poisoning a carcass so that a leopard will come and eat it and the leopard will die and they'll get the leopard for bones or skin or whatever and then the vultures incidentally die and so you know in these situations and this is particularly the case in Africa this whole growth of poison poaching really they're targeting one animal or they might not even be specifically like targeting an animal a lot of times they're just they want the vultures to die but they're not doing anything with the vultures and so first of all it's just a waste of life but you know if if they are trying to just get a leopard just the collateral damage basically or even if they just wanted to kill that elephant the collateral damage from that elephant dying 500 vultures there they are from a couple elephants that died and so it's just sort of highlights the the, the gravity of this threat and then there's there's other f- forms of um, intentional poisoning as well that is throughout the entire world where you know because there's animosity between scavenging carnivores and, and people um, people will just put out poison baits with the intent to kill the carnivores and well, this is also just to, I mean, it's related to the elephant thing, but, you know, like ranchers in South Africa, for example, it's an issue because they don't want leopards and they don't want jackals around because they might kill their privately owned game or they might kill newborn. you know, it's especially interesting in South Africa because people privately own the, the wildlife. And so, you know, you lose a impala to a predator you're losing money right which is just a horrible model but it it just i mean it's no with that kind of model conservation model it's no wonder that people want to kill carnivores like because you're losing money on it you know and so a lot of leopards and hyenas um brown hyenas spotted hyenas as well even though they're rain they've been severely depleted in south africa but they get, you know, because people know that they're going to come scavenge, they poison baits to intentionally kill them. And, you know, the poisoning is sort of like the common and most, in addition to just habitat loss, important threat to scavengers because it it doesn't, it's not always intentional like that. Sometimes it can be like poisoning from lead bullets, for example. Um that's something that is recognized as contributing to the decline of the California condor, you know, people going out and shooting whatever, and they had lead ammunition and then that lead got left in the carcass or 
left in the entrails. The vultures came and fed on it and got lead poisoning. And it's why California and other states too, um, lead ammunition is illegal because it's very harmful. And not just to condors, but to anything that eats it. Right. And it's the same thing everywhere else in the world and in Africa as well. Um, I'm sure it's... I don't know that much about specific cases where this happens like in other parts of the world but of, of course it does because people don't like carnivores and um or they're using lead ammunition or, or whatever so there's this that's that's sort of like the one threat that's very specific to scavengers Obvi- like habitat loss and climate change and other kinds of poaching like a lot of other species have those in common but really scavengers are the only ones that are being affected by this this kind of poisoning and right it's to to well that's what happened in uh in india i I didn't say but that was from veterinary drugs that the cattle had in their system when they died and then the vultures were eating it and then they were getting poisoned by this anyways so that's just that's just another example but the point is that scavengers are very prone to poisoning and so you know wherever you are in the world whatever you do whether you hunt or use guns or whatever you should really avoid lead ammunition because it you don't realize the effect that it could have after you leave the scene um whether you're just leaving the entrails or not because the the lead could affect that as well um so anyways Anything else to say about scavengers and dead things? Well, there's some good, yeah, get, you know, get, get out there and read the different papers. There's some pretty good documentaries. I think there's a, one from Net Geo on the scavenger system in, in Yellowstone. You know, obviously it's like a little bit more with the bigger predators and bigger species, but once again, very interesting. Um, no, otherwise, uh, hopefully that, you know, interested, you know, interest, you know, was interesting to our listeners and maybe might send you guys to listen and check out new things you hadn't thought about because all the time when I'm doing the research and listen to what you have to say, what I have to say, it's like, ah, oh, I gotta go check this out now. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, there's so many different things I want us to know. Yeah. Especially the um, Beatles. That was, that's so cool. Yeah. I love those studies. If you're like into reading peer-reviewed literature you should check out those those links that'll be in the show notes because they're pretty cool studies and and i really like that they connected you know these large animals that everyone cares about with beetles who no one thinks about um and it really just you know it's the circle of life (laughs) (laughs) save those think about the beetles man (laughs) you know it could be a new campaign yeah exactly um so um if you have any questions or comments we'd love to hear from you so you can email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com or get in touch with us via facebook or instagram also on there um we also you can find all of our old episodes on conservationchronicles.pobby.com and yeah oh and i also wanted to say um thanks to one of our listeners named patrick for writing in after listening to our land ethics episode um 
he wrote in about his experience restoring his property to a natural prairie in Iowa. And it, um, he has a blog and it was really interesting to read. And he also has a book called One Man and a Chainsaw that his blog um, entry made me really want to go read his book just about his experience as a landowner uh, through that prairie restoration process. It's really cool. Um, or it sounds really cool. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list and his, his blog is interesting. So, um, check out his book, one man and a chainsaw. And just wanted to give a shout out to Patrick because we appreciate when listeners, um, write in. So if you write in, maybe we'll talk about you. (laughs) Um, okay. Thanks for listening. And thanks for joining me again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.